0: Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. The library's archives provide a wealth of documentation on Mary Baker Eddy and the living history of the Christian Science Movement that she founded. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the library. I'm so pleased to be continuing a conversation with Dr. Andrew Ventimiglia on Mary Baker Eddy as a Copyright Activist. In the previous episode, Andrew and I explored the importance of copyright law in Eddie's work as a religious leader and writer. If you missed part one of our conversation, you can find it through your podcast app or on our website at mbelibrary.org podcast. To get started, we'll pick up our conversation with Andrew as he brings his background as a fellow at the Mary Baker Eddy Library and a scholar in legal, religious, and cultural studies to speak about the state of copyright law in the late 19th century and why it provoked such a strong reaction and such strong copyright activism on the part of writers in that period, including such notable figures as Mark Twain as well as Mary Baker Eddy. Incidentally, and somewhat paradoxically, while Twain, like Eddy, was a copyright activist he was also quite active in writing about Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science, especially in his later years. According to Twain scholar Hamlin Hill, quote, Twain was obsessed with Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy, unquote. Twain was generally adversarial and satirical in his writings and public statements about Eddy, but sometimes he struck a more admiring tone. We'll touch a bit on that relationship in this episode as part of our discussion on the complex issues surrounding Mary Baker Eddy's intellectual property rights and publication of her major work, Science and Health, with Key to the Scriptures.
1: In the time period that Eddy was active, with science and health at least, so say 1875 to early 1900s, the duration of copyright was much shorter, Mm. uh, for one. So today, with some exceptions, it's 70 years after the death of the author. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have copyright in your work um, from the moment it's produced through your entire lifespan, and then 70 years afterward. So it also can be passed on to future generations or whoever you will your rights to. At the time, and during Eddie's time, the duration of copyright was 28 years with a possible renewal of 14 years. So a total of 42 years, which means that for Eddie, her first edition of Science and Health, published in 1875, was to expire in 1917. So very much on the horizon as she was active as a religious leader. So duration was much shorter. Copyright was not automatic. So today, no matter what you write, as soon as it's produced, you have copyright in it. In the late 1800s, you did not automatically have copyright, you had to register your book or your work with the Copyright Office in order to ensure you had the legal rights to it. So if you, for instance, published a work before registering it, you would lose your copyright entirely. So you had to be very careful at the time about your legal rights and about ensuring registration to make sure you maintained control. And relatedly, you could also lose your copyright for small mistakes in the formalities of registration, that kind of thing. Very minor which led Eddie to really file new copyright registrations every time she made very small changes to the text. She's very kind of cautious about that. And lastly, copyright didn't extend to other works that are related to the original text. So for instance, today, if you produce, say, a Harry Potter, Mm -hmm. any abridgments, any translations, any sequels are what we'd call derivative works. So J.K. Rowling owns or has legal rights to any of those derivative works. In Eddie's time, that would not have been the case. Wow. So, translations in science and health had an uncertain legal status at the time. And, for instance, if someone were to produce additional lesson plans in relationship to science and health, Eddie would not necessarily be able to claim any kind of legal right towards those. So this is all just to say that copyright at the time was not nearly as strong not nearly as long, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't automatic. So you had to be very careful about your legal rights. I think Eddie recognized this as a concern for protecting science and health because of its importance and because its expiration was imminent in, in the later parts of her life. And that was a concern that was shared amongst other major authors, major literary figures at the time, most conspicuously would be Mark Twain. He was very much a copyright activist. He would go appear in front of Congress and deliver speeches about the necessity to have copyright be protected longer. And a little bit earlier in time, but for instance, Charles Dickens was very concerned about American copyright because the U.S. would often pirate British works. So Dickens would do American tours and actually advocate for for longer, stronger copyright at the time. So Eddie shared a lot with these other literary figures in turning to copyright and being aware that a stronger copyright regime would be to their benefit. So while she shared these commonalities with other literary figures, one might even say kind of early celebrity authors, Mm -hmm. um, that was very unusual in the realm of religious practice. Mm. To think about copyright in the context of religious or spiritual texts at the time was, as far as I can tell, She was really a pioneer in that respect, and that made her both share a lot of commonalities with these literary figures, but also create differences that made it difficult for her necessarily to communicate with them or for them to ally on on copyright reform.
0: Well, science and health may be alone in this respect in that Eddie made it the pastor, along with the scriptures, along with the Bible of the Christian science Church. She did that in 1895. So she replaced all personal preaching in Christian Science Church services with readings of citations from the Bible and from Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. In the Church Manual for the Christian Science Church, she notes that these two texts, quote, will continue to preach for this church and the world, unquote. So are there copyright implications for this unique status of science and health with Key to the Scriptures
1: mm-hmm. as,
0: as so foundational to Christian science and, and how Christian science services take place.
1: It was really an incredible move that she made to appoint the text itself a pastor. Mm. And that demonstrated, I think, the degree to which she saw the text as, you know, we might call a living text. It really was the thing that would carry her voice forward for Christian Scientists in the future. So, for her to appoint the text the central role in the organization meant that she saw that it was going to have this life going forwards. That science and health was going to continue to be a focal point for the organization for Christian Scientists.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So th- that does mean that she wanted to ensure that the integrity and the accuracy of the text could be maintained potentially in perpetuity, right? Mm-hmm. As, long as, the, as long as Christian science, as long as the church was vibrant and active, it would have this text as the anchor and it would act as an anchor also to Eddie as a figure and as a teacher. So what this means is that Eddie saw the loss of copyright in science and health as being very risky or providing a kind of danger to the organization going forward. And that's one of the reasons she was such an activist for copyright extension. And this actually led to the passage of a private bill in the 1970s. The Christian scientists did actually pass a private bill extending copyright in science and health with key to the scriptures, precisely because the text had this unique religious status, mm-hmm. um, and it couldn't be considered any other text. This, this private bill was later ruled unconstitutional, but it demonstrates that legal rights in the text could reinforce its importance for the organization. So the fact that copyright has now run out in science and health could be seen as a threat to maintaining the text integrity. But I think what the institution has done going forward is really savvy, which is that they have focused attention instead on ensuring that the text is an authorized version, right, and that this authorized version is legally underpinned by the trademark of the Christian science of the cross and crown. Mm. And trademark is an indefinite right. Mm-hmm. Um, so trademark won't expire. So in a way, trademark and the ability of the Christian science church to produce authorized texts in that way do some of the work that copyright did for Mary Baker Eddy as she was developing science and health. So there are some legal ways that science and health can be maintained in the way that Eddy imagined even as it's fallen out of copyright protection.
0: So it, it, in, in some senses, that, that trademark assures the reader or the user that they're getting the real deal, that this is the the authentic product.
1: That's right. And what's so interesting is that Mary Baker Eddy's original use of copyright had that same logic, mm-hmm. right? Generally, we think of copyright as fundamentally doing two things. One, it protects the economic rights of the producer. In other words, that it, it allows the... The author to, to make money off of what they've produced. And two, by providing those rights, it encourages other people to produce more, right? Um, because you're not as afraid of piracy or anything like that. For Eddie, neither of those things were too important to her use of copyright. Her interest in copyright was always a kind of trademark logic, mm-hmm. which was that she was ensuring that consumers or that readers knew exactly what they were receiving mm-hmm. um, when they were getting her text. In other words, It was like trademark in that it was a legal right that was very much designed to protect the reader uh, as much as it was to protect her own authorship. And that's a a really creative way to think about copyright law.
0: So, Andrew, just curious, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the kinds of materials you worked with here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library Archives to gain a deeper understanding of Mary Baker Eddy as a copyright activist?
1: The richest material... To look at the history of copyright law in the context of Christian science was through Eddie's correspondence, which the library has digitized and made text searchable. So I was able to look through all the correspondence that Eddie had produced, where she mentioned various dimensions of her legal rights, to see how her thinking evolved over time, to see how she was actually an activist for copyright reform. She was writing to figures in dc and in new york and political figures to advocate for uh extending copyright duration these are things that i knew nothing about Mm. uh, that wouldn't have had any official legal traces right but that you could find looking at the letters so this points to my own interdisciplinary interest in researching the cultural history of law Mm -hmm. is to say that legal scholars miss a lot when they're just looking at legal documents themselves right right legal understanding is is present in a lot of other practices. And so Eddie's correspondence became a really rich resource for looking at different places where you can say the where the law happens. Yeah. And then another detail that I found at the library, which firmed up my thinking about Eddie as being this fascinating and underlooked copyright activist, <laughs> was that she shared the same legal counsel with Mark Twain. Wow. So Mary Baker Eddie and Mark Twain at the same time had um, <laughs> legal counsel provided by a lawyer, Samuel Elder, who wrote a piece called Our Archaic Copyright Laws, wow. and who was looking at the difficulties of registration and how these things should be streamlined and how we should extend duration, things like that. So Eddie and Twain, as very public enemies, actually had these incredible commonalities behind the, behind the surface, right? They, had the, they shared the same legal counsel. They thought The same way about copyright law. And they really missed finding these resonances because of their kind of public disputes, or at least Twain's public dispute with Eddie. Right. So, another kind of fascinating thing that I found in the library you have these key figures who are also both interested in their legacy to one degree or another, right? Mm -hmm. Eddie concerned about her spiritual legacy, ensuring the text is alive and continues after she's gone. And Twain being concerned about his own text for his daughters. And there, there are all these almost natural parallels once we move beyond the, the very public dispute about their own relationship to their work, um, their own value of authorship, their own value of literary craft. They, they shared all these things in common. One of the things that
0: Eddie and Twain didn't share in common was gender. So I'm just curious if you could speak to what were the implications of intellectual property for for women in this time period?
1: At the time there was the common law of coverture, which was that a woman when she was married often lost a lot of her legal rights or those legal rights became the husband's rights. Mm. And that sometimes included copyright. In other words, whatever the wife produced, those legal rights would actually go to the, to the husband. So the common law of coverture was just being overturned. There were movements allied with the emerging suffrage movements, that were really trying to ensure that women, within or outside of marriage, were given the same legal rights as men. So this was the environment in which Eddie was beginning to develop her work. And I think she probably saw copyright, her legal rights and authorship, is not entirely different from her legal rights in other things. So, for instance, the loss of custody of her child, of George Washington Glover, Or the lack of control over her finances as she was developing science and health, I think there were probably resonances between those legal losses Mm. and her interest in maintaining control over science and health that she produced and invested all this time and effort into. And in fact, Eddie shares with some other authors, uh, particularly in the European tradition, the metaphors of talking about your own text as your, as your child, right? You have mm. the same kind of legal relationship to the text you've authored as one of your own children. You have the same responsibilities to it. You see yourself in it in similar ways. So we could think of Eddie's interest in copyright as really being part of a broader interest in ensuring her legal rights as a woman at the time, mm-hmm. um, which was not taken for granted at all and was something that she really had to fight to maintain control over.
0: It's interesting you say that, because that, that sense of of having that parent-child bond with her, her writings does come out in her preface to, to Science and Health. She says this, quote, Before writing this work, Science and Health, she, meaning Mary Baker Eddy, made copious notes of scriptural exposition, which have never been published. This was during the years 1867 and 1868. These efforts show her comparative ignorance of the stupendous life problem up to that time, and the degrees by which she came at length to its solution. But she values them as a parent may treasure the memorials of a child's growth, and she would not have them changed. Unquote. Mm-hmm. So I think it, that captures a bit of that sentiment that you were uh, absolutely that you were alluding to.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, one of the reasons why copyright has both the right to publish and the right not to publish, mm-hmm. is this idea that texts need to be released when they've grown up, right? right? When they've developed suitably to face the public. And so one of the logics for allowing a right not to publish mm-hmm. is that you kind of have to nurture them. There are all these dimensions that really are, these legal dimensions that really have these resonances with, uh, with parenthood, that you have to nurture the text, edit it, work on it. And then when it's ready you can release it into the world and that that control is really fundamental and so i i i love that eddie picks up on that yeah that, those characteristics
0: yeah well i love that you're giving me a, a much greater sense of the law and lawyers as being so sensitive i tend I <laughs> not to think of them that way but it seems that there's a, a great deal of sensitivity there to the to the human experience and what is uh, deeply uh, meaningful to people Well, Andrew, this has been just just wonderful to spend this time with you exploring this subject. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure being here. Thank you. And thanks to you, Andrew. If you would like to explore the library's online archives for your own research, please view the links on this page or within the info tab of your podcast app. In our next podcast, we'll be discussing the life and career of Violet Oakley, a prominent American artist of the 20th century. Among her many notable commissions are the murals that adorn the Pennsylvania State Capitol building in Harrisburg. Our guests are Oakley scholar, Dr. Patricia Ricci, Associate Professor of the History of Art at Elizabethtown College, and Mary Bakerty Library curator, Pam Winstead. Winstead will discuss the library's collection of works by Oakley, and Professor Ricci will bring her considerable knowledge of Oakley to provide insight into the overall trajectory of Oakley's career, including about the important role that Christian science played in her life and work. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars.
1: This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2018.